Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. All right. Hey, welcome to Faith. Good to see you guys this morning. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. I'm, I'm excited about the message this morning. Also excited to share with you that Goose Creek today is celebrating their one-year birthday party. So give it up for our other campus. And uh, we are excited to share and celebrate with them. It's hard to believe a year has already gone by since we launched about this time last year, so they're having a great, great celebration over there. We're in a series, Room at the Table. The idea is God has a great table of grace that has been spread for everybody, and whosoever will may come and find life and find God's grace. The first week we looked at the the time when Jesus went into the temple and he cleanses out the temple because the Jews would only allow, it was so hard to get in there to offer their sacrifices and find forgiveness. And Jesus, after he does that, makes this statement. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. God welcomes everybody to come to his great table. Last week we looked at an incredible story that Jesus Christ tells of an unlikely hero. He is an unlikely hero because he's a Samaritan. The Samaritans are hated by the Jews, and yet he is the one who proves to be the neighbor. And the idea is we are to be neighbors to anybody in need, and everybody, once again, is included at the table of the Lord, even Samaritans. Today you're going to read about another lady who makes her way into the table of God. She has to go through some obstacles and hoops to get there, but she finally gets to God's table. Let's stand together, and we'll look at it as we read this morning. Mark chapter 7 and verse number 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrophoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Hallelujah. What an incredible story. Let's pray. Father, I need your help today. Uh, Just open up our hearts this morning to hear what the Spirit would say to the church this morning. Lord, teach us from your word. uh, The Lord, that there's room for everybody. God, anybody can come this morning and find great grace in their time of need. So we thank you for this story of remarkable faith. Bring it alive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, tell them you look great this morning, then you, you may be seated. How many in the house own a dog? Let me see your hand. Wow, dog owners all over the place. 
How many would say you treat your dog like a family member? Let me see your hand. How about better than your own kids? Let me see your hand. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, uh, right now my wife and I, we don't have a dog. I have nothing against dogs. I'm sure they're great pets. But uh, my lifestyle is not conducive to dog ownership at this point. And so, but when I was a kid, mom and dad got uh, me and my brother a little dog. It was a Sheltie. Sheltie's a long, it's like a miniature collie. Looks like a collie, only it's a little small little collie. And it's called a Sheltie, got a little pointed nose, a lot of hair. And uh, we named our dog Prince. And so Prince was like in the house, although we kept it outside in the garage. And uh, that's where he hung out. And then he would play in the afternoon with the kids. And so it was kind of a great arrangement. I, 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 one thing happened though. Prince was allowed to kind of run the neighborhood. And so he learned some bad habits from the dog across the street. He learned how to chase buses. And so every morning the bus would come and pick the kids up for school, me up for school, my brother up for school. And Prince would go wild and he would think it was a game to chase down that bus. And he was crossing in and out in front of the bus and nipping at the tire and and probably would follow for a couple of blocks until the bus driver could get far enough ahead and he'd give up and go back home. And I was always sitting on the bus so embarrassed about my dog Prince. And doing that, and I said, oh, mom, you got to keep him in the garage. He can't be chasing this bus all over the place. And so we would do that. But I remember on one occasion, we were going to play some football. And we had to find a field, obviously, to have enough room to play football. And so we probably went about a mile to this great big huge field. All the guys were going, and Prince had gotten out. And he followed me all the way to where the field was with all the other kids. And I realized as I was getting closer to the football field, it was also very close to a very busy road. And I could just see my dog getting out there and getting run over on the road. And so I did something that is unfathomable because I was too lazy to take the dog all the way back home. I had no way to get Prince to go. I couldn't make it go home. And so I picked up rocks and began to throw up my little doggie. Uh, isn't that bad? Isn't that sad? Isn't that sick? What kind of a twisted mind and twisted kid would throw rocks at a little dog prince? Well, don't do that. Don't treat your dog that way. Now, I've got a story here that when you begin to look at it and you, and you begin to unpack this story, you see the Lord look, use some very hard language to refer to this Syrophoenician woman who calls her a dog. In effect, i got to feed all the children first. The dogs just get whatever's left. I've come first for all the kids and, and, and kind of uses that language and talks to this lady who is just suffering in an agony and pain and yet now she feels somewhat rejected, somewhat pushed away and he uses this language and imagery of a dog under the table to describe her status. Doesn't seem like a lot of love doesn't seem like Jesus is welcoming her into the table. It's not like he's saying, come on in, lady. Join the party. Join the celebration. Come on in. I'll I'll heal your daughter. There's room at my table. That's not the very first impression you get from this story. But this desperate woman will press in in spite of all the cultural and religious barriers. She is going to receive her miracle. She is not going to give up. Great, great picture of faith. 
So we study the scripture. Now let me give you the backdrop very quickly to this story and kind of set the scene up for you, if I may, this morning. First of all, Jesus' and disciples, they have had a crazy, exhausting schedule. They have been so busy. They're tired. They're wore out. They have been traveling everywhere they go. The crowds would be there. They were always healing the sick, casting out demons, doing good stuff. He, had, in the previous chapter, sends the disciples out and to go to the villages two by two. And so they've been wandering around from house to house, casting out demons devils, healing the sick, doing intense spiritual warfare. And then before this occasion, he had just fed 5,000 men. Can you imagine the crowds all gathered together? There's men there, 5,000 plus their wives, plus all the kids. And he feeds them and he multiplies the loaves and fishes and feeds the entire crowd. He goes across the Sea of Galilee. While crossing the Sea of Galilee, what happens? A storm comes up, almost wipes out the boat. The good news is Jesus is on board. How many know if he's on board, your boat's not going down? And they make it to the other side. And everywhere he goes, he encounters this enormous suffering, this human suffering of mankind. And then he deals with the legalistic Pharisees who are always trying to trap him and ensnare him and somehow persecute him and drag him down. And so finally, Jesus and disciples, the language is very clear, they leave the area of Galilee and Judea, and they really kind of get out of the whole Jewish area to area called Tyre. And Tyre is this area that was not a Jewish area. It was a Gentile-populated area. And so they are purposely hiding out from all the Jews so they can have a respite, so they can have a time to rest and get away from the masses and get away from the crowd. And you get the idea. They find a house there. Someone knew about them. They find a house. Jesus and his 12 disciples, if it's possible, sneak on into that house. Now, how many know it's hard to sneak 13 guys into a house without being noticed? But they sneak on into the house and they try to get some uninterrupted rest. They just want to rest. They just want to chill out. They just need to regroup. And once again, they are interrupted by a very, very desperate woman. And into this scene where these disciples are and Jesus Christ is, she barges in and kind of interrupts their rest all over again. Now I want to give you three, if you would, aspects of this story that I think kind of grab our attention and kind of set the plate for us today. First of all, it's simply this. There was this issue of race. Not only is she barging into the house and interrupting their rest, but look at verse number 26. He is very careful to say the woman was a Greek, not a Jew, a Greek, an idol worshiper for all intents and purposes, born in Syrophoenicia, So she is called the Syrophoenician woman. Now, you don't get it right here, but as you study history of of these nations that lived around Israel at this time, she is a direct descendant of the Canaanites. The Canaanites, in fact, Matthew has the same account in his gospel, and he calls the woman a Canaanite. Uh, Mark says she's Syrophoenician. Matthew will say she's a Canaanite. So she was a descendant of the Canaanite tribes who had fought with Israel and plagued Israel all throughout their history. And in fact, uh, they, uh, they, they bothered them. They, they, uh, they did war together. And Jesus, uh, God told the Jewish people, he says, I want you to wipe out all the Canaanites when you conquer the land and you possess the land. If you don't destroy the Canaanites, he says in Deuteronomy, they shall be thorns in your side, their God shall be a snare to you. So get rid of them, wipe them out. 
And it's this Canaanite who comes barging into their quiet refuge, and she represents all that is evil, all that is unclean, all that is sinful. She represents that because she herself is a Canaanite. Now, Matthew has it, and, and we, we're going to just share a few verses from Matthew. But Matthew 15, 23, the disciples, when she comes in, say, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. In other words, the disciples very clearly at the beginning, when she first interrupts their party, says, get her out of here. There's no room at our table. We're trying to rest. We're trying to get some peace and quiet. And after all, she's only a Canaanite. She's only a Syrophoenician. She's only Greek. You see, the disciples not only looked down on the Samaritans, who we talked about last week, but they also looked down on Gentile Canaanites. In fact, they called them Gentile dogs. The Jews did. And pretty much every other race that was non-Jewish. Send her away. Get her out of here. I want to tell you something. At Faith Assembly of God, may we never be so selfish to send anyone away. We may not say it verbally, but do we send them away with our looks and our scorn and our attitudes because they're different, because they might be difficult to handle, because they might be a a nuisance to what we're trying to do? And how do we send them away with cold looks and harsh words? May we never do this. Racial differences were not a, are not a reason to be afraid of someone or dislike someone or withhold the gospel from anybody because the Bible says, whosoever will can come and be saved. Now, Jesus did come to the Jews first. The Bible says Jesus came to the Jews first. But it goes on to say that he also came for the Gentiles. And that's good news. Aren't you glad Jesus came for the Gentiles because if he did not, we would probably just have to turn off the lights and head on home because I will tell you, most of you in the house are Gentile dogs. Saved by God's incredible grace. And he makes room for every single one of us to come to his glorious table. And because of that, we are here today. I want to fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter is on the top of a roof and he's hungry and he has a trance and he has a vision of God and God is trying to get across to Peter and these early apostles that the gospel is for every single person on the face of the earth and so what does he do he drops a sheet down that has all kinds of unclean animals animals that would not be kosher in the Jewish faith and three times he has to say arise and eat and each time Peter would say not so Lord not so Lord How many know you can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence? (laughs) If he's your Lord, you got to say yes. Not so, Lord. And it took him three times to get over it. And all the while he's doing this, God is speaking to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who sends men to Joppa to find Peter. And they're knocking on the front door. And they say, come and go with us to Caesarea. And they go to Caesarea. They go to the house of a Roman general. A Roman centurion, he is there, he is a Gentile, he is a part of the enemy, so to speak, for the nation of Israel. And while Peter is preaching, they get saved, they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I want to look at this remarkable statement, and this has got to be our statement this morning. I now realize that with God, 
that God does not show favoritism to any race. He doesn't show favoritism. And if God doesn't show favoritism, neither can I. But accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And from that time on, the gospel would go around to the Roman, all throughout the Roman Empire. Paul would take it to the far reaches empire area of Rome. God does not show favoritism. Now listen, let me tell you why this message is so timely today. There's a lot of racial tension in America. We have had police officers get shot. We've had African Americans get shot. We have seen rioting and protesting going on in our streets. And now pro football players are choosing to sit out the national anthem in protest. Large segments of our nation are still racially divided. Fifty years after the whole segregation thing and the whole JFK and and giving equal rights, 50 years later we are still poisoned by racism in America today. I want to tell you something. If there is a remnant of prejudice in your heart, you need to confess that to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse my heart. God, you do not show favoritism. I need to love everybody regardless of race, creed, color, or religion. Let God come in and change you from the inside out. I don't care what your pappy may have said or your grandpappy may have said. You are now a child of the Most High God. And he says, I don't show favoritism, neither can I. This Syrophoenician woman is desperate. And in spite of all the obstacles that are there culturally, in spite of the racial barriers and the differences, she would let nothing stop her from getting to Jesus Christ. And so she presses on in because her girl is possessed by demons. Now after she gets in the house and the Bible identifies who she is, all of a sudden Jesus throws her a curveball. And he comes out with this statement, And uh, he says in verse 27, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, I want to tell you, that sounds pretty harsh. When you first hear that and you say, Jesus said that? Wait a minute. Time out. Doesn't sound right. What Jesus is doing is taking a common expression from that day to describe the Gentiles. But the Gentiles had a different word for dog when they described other people outside of the Jewish faith. Their word for dog was to imply they were not a member of the house, they were not children, but they used the word dog as dogs who roamed the streets, dogs who could be vicious, dogs who could bite you, dogs who could attack you. The Canaanite tribe had snapped at the heels of Israel for generations. It's like a mailman trying to deliver his mail and the dog comes up and bites you on the leg. That's what they, the Canaanites had been doing to the nation of Israel for all these generations as they had always warred in the Old Testament against the nation of Israel. But Jesus uses a little bit different word for dog here. He uses the word for little dog. It's that little foo-foo dog, a little lap dog that sits on your lap at home that's no bigger than a mouse. 
and that you adore and that you love. That's the word that Jesus uses there. It's a cute little household pet that hung under the table eating the scraps. Now, my son has a dog. Jason has a dog. It is a, uh, let me get this right, it is a King Charles Spaniel. And so if you know anything about it, it's a King Charles dog, whatever, and, and it's a little long, hairy dog, and the hair is, is, is on the floor just like the legs are on the floor. So you got all this hairy King Charles dog. And uh, that dog is a smart dog. It's getting old, pretty old now, getting up there, can't see very well, can't hear very well. But anyway, but he knows when it's dinner time. Because at dinner time, he hangs beside the table. Now, Jason and Jessica don't feed the dog table scraps as a rule because he gets dog food. But I have grandkids. I have twin boys, Sam and Ben, and, my, and Jack, who's eight years of age. Eight and two twins, ten years of age. How many know when kids eat at the table, they don't always, they spill food all over the place? And so Marla waits at mealtime. She knows when mealtime is here and the kids are at the table, bam, food is going to fall to the floor and Marla will be there to clean that floor up. And they let all that go because the little table scraps aren't going to hurt. Now you would think that a Syrophoenician woman who just said, you know what, our food is for the children not for the puppy dogs, not for dogs, anyone outside of the Jewish faith. You'd think she would be totally offended. At this point, she's entire. Everybody around her are Greek. She could have taken a, a uh, placard out. She could have protested the house. She could have had people marching around that house and protest. She could have sang chants and all kinds of songs. Uh, she could have set up a, a sued Jesus Christ for libel or whatever she would have tried to do because she's in her own grounds, her own territory. But instead of carrying the offense, she does something else. She presses on in. She doesn't give up. And so I want you to notice the second observation is that is this woman's remarkable faith. And I want you to see it in verse 28. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, if Gentile dogs are not considered a part of the children of Israel or a part of the household, she'll be content, just let me come and hang underneath the table. Let me remain in the house, let me remain in the household, let me remain under your care, Lord. And if I can remain under your care, how many know the crumbs of the Lord's grace are enough? God's crumbs to feed you are more than anything else in the entire wealth of this world. It doesn't compare to the grace that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. The crumbs, they will be enough. Let me paraphrase this verse for you. It goes something like this. Lord, I know your first responsibility is to the house of Israel, so go ahead and minister to them. Open every blind eye. Loose every dumb tongue. Unstop every deaf ear. Cleanse every leper. Heal every cripple. Cast out every unclean spirit. Uh, and even raise the dead. Just let me tag behind you and pick up the crumbs. That will be more than enough to deliver my daughter. What kind of faith is that? More than enough. Just give me the crumbs. When she approached Jesus on the basis of need, he seemed unmoved by her plight. I want you to listen to this. When she came on the basis of need, I've got a demon-possessed daughter, do something. Jesus is unmoved by her plight. 
But when she spoke to him out of her faith, he responds, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. That's great. We come to Jesus through faith. Through faith. God, you can do anything. Not just that I have a need, but God, I believe you can fix this need. You can heal this need. You can solve this problem. We always approach God on the basis of faith, not simply out of need. I want you to put yourself in this woman's shoes for just a few moments. I can imagine she is thinking to herself, what has happened to my beautiful little girl? How did this evil invade our home and take up habitation in my daughter? Am I the one at fault? Did I let the demons into my house? Did I not protect my family? How does this demon get into my house? Who opened the door to this foul spirit? She probably thinks, never have I felt so helpless. Although I love my daughter more than life itself, I am powerless to help her. There's nothing I can do. Another night with no sleep. Every day she comes up with new ways to try to kill herself and destroy herself. And when she hisses at me and when she hits me, she's so strong. I don't know how much more I can take. I've gone to the pagan moon goddess Astart, But she's done nothing. In fact, she's just a dumb idol. But I saw Jesus and 12 other men slip in, and I've heard the stories about his healing power, and I've heard about his power over demons. And she cast aside her dignity. She cast any fears she might have had about what anybody else might have thought about her going into that house or, or the rebuke from the disciples. She says, I'm going to press in. I've got to get to Jesus Christ. I am desperate for my daughter to be set free. And made well. I'm not leaving without a touch from Jesus Christ. It's interesting that only two people in the entire New Testament are described as having great faith. And I want you to follow this. This is fascinating. Only two that the Bible said had great faith. Both of them were Gentiles. Okay? One is here, the Syrophoenician woman. You have had great faith. The other is a Roman centurion found in Matthew chapter 8. It's also interesting that both of those miracles were done from a distance. He heals the, he the Roman centurion's servant from a distance. He heals this lady's daughter from a distance. He just speaks the word, she goes back home, and she is made well. Now, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Gentiles are those who are described as being afar off, not in the family of God. They're not, in the, they're not a part of God's original chosen people who would be a light to the Gentiles, but they're outside of that. And so the Bible describes them as at one time being afar off. In fact, now anybody who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is really afar off. Because listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. This is such a great passage. Ephesians 2 and verse number 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once 
far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We were once far away, but because of God's precious blood and his amazing grace, he's brought us near to the table. He says, come and sit at my table of grace. Both miracles for these Gentiles were done from far off. But later, Paul would write to the Ephesians, you who were once far off are now brought near. How are we brought near? By the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I want you to notice her response, the response to her faith, and that is the answer of grace. Go back, if you would, look at verse number 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Now, by the way, it's in Matthew's gospel that he says, you have great faith. But here it says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Let me tell you what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You don't merit it. You'll never be good enough. It's grace. We don't deserve it. In fact, it even goes contrary to our works-oriented society or our reward-based society, which says you work so hard and you do so much and you'll get a reward. And so everything we think about in terms of American rugged individualism is I can save myself, I can build myself up, I can be good enough, and if I do enough stuff, then God will have to take me in. It doesn't work that way, my friends. You are only saved by grace and grace alone. You could never, ever earn your salvation. Grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives us what we need even though we don't deserve it. This Syrophoenician woman, she, for all intents and purposes, is most likely an idol worshiper. She has been worshiping idols in this Greek territory all of her life. She has been performing probably all kinds of lewd acts of immorality. Probably her idol worship has opened up her home to demonic possession. And we see that in her own daughter, in her own family. But she had faith that Jesus Christ could heal her daughter and set her free. And God responds to her faith by giving his grace. That's the way he operates today. She was the channel for her daughter's healing. With one hand, she holds on to the power of God, and with the other hand, she believed for her suffering daughter, and she becomes the conduit of faith by which her daughter would be forever set free. Grace. The same kind of faith is needed today for our own children. You say, Lord, I believe you can reach my kids. I look around this room, and I know there's many of you that got kids that are away from the faith, prodigal sons and daughters, kids that may be in drugs, kids whose marriages are messed up, kids whose finances are messed up, kids whose life's going in the wrong direction, and they're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and it breaks your heart. I want to tell you, that's the kind of faith you need to believe God for, that he can save our sons and our daughter. Never underestimate the power of a parent's love. Love will keep you pressing for a miracle long past the point of exhaustion. God, I believe. God, I will not let go. God, I'll keep trusting in you. A parent's love will cause them to give up their necessity of life in order to provide for their child. You know it. Your child's the most important person in your life, and you'll do anything for the sake of your child. 
It'll cause a parent to risk ridicule and humiliation, even persecution and death on behalf of a child. A parent's love will prevail when all else fails. But even a parent's love is but a dim reflection of our Heavenly Father's love for us. As great as this mother's love was for her demon-possessed daughter, as great as your love is for your sons and your daughters and how much you care about them and how much you love them and how much you pray over them and how much you intercede for them and how much you give for them, it's just a small glimpse of how great God's love is for us, our Heavenly Father. I'm a dad. I've got two boys, and I've got a daughter. Nothing is harder than to see my kids suffer. If they're sick, if they're going through something, if they're going through a trial or test, that's a hard thing to go through. And, and nothing blesses me more than to see them succeed or do well and to see God bless them because they're my kids. They're my kids. They're, they're my life. And whatever touches my kids touches me, right? If you're parents, you know what I'm talking about. But if I feel this strongly, how much more does our Heavenly Father care about us? Listen to this verse. Listen, this verse says it so well. Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Isaiah 49, verse 15 and 16. Listen to this. Can a mother forget a baby at her breast and have no compassion On the child she is born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. How many know God has tattoos on his hands? You are tattooed on the palm of his hands. Remember in school, no, you didn't do this, but you wrote the answer, you know, you wrote some answers down before you went in. You looked at your, okay, I know the answer to that one. Nobody did that in here, I'm sure. But God won't forget you. He's got you written down and tattooed in the palm of his hand. How much he loves you. Nearly inconceivable that a nursing mother could forget the child at her breast. That's what the Bible says. Even if that could happen, even as unfathomable as that is, even after all the pain of childbirth and bringing that child into this world, uh, and, and then that nursing mother to think she would ever give up on her son and daughter, that tiny bundle of frail humanity, so dependent, surely nothing short of death can make her forget her child. Yet in extreme cases, Mothers have been known to forsake their children, and we see every once in a while some horror story on the news or somebody that runs into the lake and kills all her kids, and you see some crazy stories like that of child abuse out there, and you you wonder how in the world could that ever happen. Mothers have been known to forsake their children, but it is unnatural. It's unnatural. It goes against everything that a mother is, but it still does happen. But I will tell you, listen to me. God's word says your heavenly father will never, ever forget you. He never, ever loses track of you. You are engraved on the palm of his hands. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and save all those who are lost. It says whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. 
Now listen, some takeaways this morning. We need to be conduits who stand in that place of faith, just like this Syrophoenician woman did, where we touch the hand of God and we reach out to a hurting, broken world and and we pray for them and we intercede for them, whether they be our sons or daughters or any other family member or anybody else we're reaching out to and we reach out a hand to them and we become that conduit for God's grace to flow, just like this lady was used. We need to get past appearances and stereotypes and racism and reach out to everybody we can. Why? Because there's room at the table. But I also want to leave with this thought today. No matter what you're facing right now, be encouraged. God has you written down in the palm of his hands. And the one who intervened on behalf of this Syrophoenician woman and her daughter is here today. He's alive today, and he's able to help you and minister grace and deliver you and give you freedom and set you free from sin. He sees your situation. He hears your desperate cries. He cares about you, and he cares about everybody else you love. He's coming to deliver you from your crisis. I, I just love the end of this series because we're featuring a story from one of our own here at Faith Assembly of God. This story is about a man who himself was delivered from incredible bondage. I want you to take a look at his story, and then we're going to pray for you today. After ripping every picture off the wall, shattering the glass all over the room, I lit the room on fire, and I laid down in the shards of glass in the fetal position, and I wept. And then I got on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, heal me or kill me because I could not take one more second of that miserable suffocation of my soul. They say no child ever wants to grow up to be an addict, but I actually did. I actually thought that to myself and I wanted to be hardcore and I wanted to leave the, the mores and the, the constraints of, of society. And I wanted something, something beyond convention. I wanted nonconformity. And so I began experimenting with psychedelics because the, uh, it, it was mind expansion, higher consciousness, creative enhancement. And I could paint and I played my guitar and I wrote more prolifically and eloquently than I ever had before. And I had always always romanticized the beat, the beat poets and their, uh, their use of heroin. And that's, that's what I had in, in the back of my mind, that, that one day I'll, you know, I'll be an addict. And I knew all of this when I was about 12 years old. I ended up um, you know, living, living on the road, wandering around the country, following the Grateful Dead, and completely disconnected. Um, seems like I was free. I mean, I, I owed nobody. I owned nothing. But... I was miserable, I was depressed, and I was, I was very frightened. Never admit that, but I was. Eventually, I had to return to society, though. And when I did, I found myself working minimum wage jobs, two, maybe three months at a time, quitting. I saw everybody around me going to college, buying houses, starting families. And I began to detest them. But what's more, as I detested myself, the result of this it started to become anxiety. And it was a desperately intense anxiety. 
and all day long, that's all you feel is nervous and anxious. And it became unbearable. But then I found, I found a soothing medication that actually worked, and that medication was heroin. That decade was nothing but in and out, being going in and out of jail, rehabs, psych wards, and it was in cycles, and I would use for a while, and then I would go to rehab, and then I'd come out and stay clean for a month or two, I'd relapse again, I'd break the law, go back to jail, over and over, recidivism for that entire time. I was living in a car. I lost my apartment. I was evicted from many, many apartments. And then finally, I was living in a car. And I was running the streets of, of North Philly at night, looking for the next bag of dope and getting stuck up all the time and time and time again. And where, did, where I finally ended up was in the dungeon of my parents' basement. It was, there were no windows and it was dark. And I spent all my time by myself in that basement. I would leave for a little while, go to the methadone clinic, shoplift, cop more drugs, head back there to the basement, stay up for five days at a time, shooting coke. Because I was on the methadone and the heroin high was blocked, so I had to do cocaine. And that's where I completely lost my mind. The doctors had told me that any shot, any injection, anyone could end my life because what I was doing is I was shooting that blood from the infection. I was shooting up right in the infection, shooting that blood straight to my heart. And I didn't want to die. And every time I shot up, I prayed to Jesus. I said, Jesus, please don't let me die. I don't want to die. Despite that, all day, every day, all I continued to do was try to kill myself. And the doctors told me, if you continue with this, both of your forearms are going to be amputated, have to be amputated at the elbow because they're going, to, they're going to become gangrenous. And in the midst of that, in, in all the loneliness and the despair, I, I felt a presence and I, I felt the presence of Christ there with me. I know he was with me and he was patient and calm and loving. And I, I was never alone in that basement. He reached down into that cesspool of filth, addiction, and he pulled me out because he heard my cries and I had suffered long enough. Two days later, after that earnest prayer in the burning room and in the shattered glass, I was arrested in a convenience store bathroom shooting up. And my PO gave me the, the choice, either rehab or jail. And that was no choice at all because I wanted so bad to get, to get better. And I found that I couldn't trust my thinking because my thinking was skewed and distorted. So I needed to let somebody else do my thinking for me for a while. And God put all those right people in my path. Now, all the things that used to used to mar my self-esteem before that I had, had no job skills and I had, had no girl and, and no home. And, I mean, I have, you know, now I have, I have a beautiful wife and two priceless daughters and I just bought my first house, was healed from hepatitis C and yeah, I can't, 
when, as I'm saying this, I can't even believe that it's really me that's saying this about myself because it's just, it's so amazing. And I finished college and I have a good career now. So it's been by, through abandoning my will and putting my life completely in his hands that these, that these blessings have came. It was, it was Jesus that was standing next to me all that, that whole time, that whole time in, that, in that, that dark, cold, desperate basement. It was him who was there with me. And he promised never to leave me and never to forsake me. And he kept his word. He lifted me out of the ash heap and set me amongst princes. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated for just a moment. Jeremy was, is joining the church today. Didn't make the early service. He'll be at the next service, and he will be lining up with all those who are joining here at Faith Assembly of God. So he's one of our brand new members here at Faith. What a great story of God's grace. Uh, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to give you a chance to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and into your life today. You can say, God, I need you. I don't care how messed up your life is. You heard the story. God can save you. Maybe this wasn't demonic possession in the classical definition or sense of the word, but he was possessed nonetheless by cocaine and by heroin. But Christ came in and set him free. And he did that for Jeremy, he can do it for you. He can do it for anybody. If he did it for the Syrophoenician's daughter, he can do it for you. You just got to say, God, I need you. Put your faith and trust in him. I want to pray for you right now as the Holy Spirit does his work. Father, I thank you, God, for your incredible, amazing. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.